Welcome to the Connectivity Matters podcast, a series of interviews with key leaders throughout the industry, all brought to you by the Connectivity team at Newco, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm. Welcome to the Connectivity Matters podcast. Your hosts today are me, Dan Jeffrey, Senior Consultant, and Tom Wilding, Managing Consultant. And we're delighted to be joined by Shane Powler, VP of Sales at Plume Design. Shane has 20 years industry sales experience, starting with Cisco in Australia, before moving to the UK with Dell EMC. He returns to Cisco under Meraki, where he led a team of over 50 sales professionals, launching over 180 managed services and driving over $500 million in revenue. In November 2021, Shane joined Plume Design, where he leads EMEA sales, creating a new category of smart home experiencing, leveraging cloud and AI. Welcome to the show, Shane. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Super. So to, to get us started, we always love people asking people the same thing. How did you first get into the connectivity industry? So I, I kind of fell into it, um, in all honesty. I, I was originally studying at university, planning on going into investment banking or management consultancy. And then um, I got called in to do some, I got called in to do some part-time marketing work uh within a, an it training company actually back in australia and then um as that kept on rolling one of their sort of sales people left um the guys who ran the business tapped me on the shoulder and said hey can you fill the seat for a minute while we uh while we find uh, somebody else in the role and then fast forward a couple of months and i was kind of asked to then take on a division that they wanted to reignite in the company and the rest is history i sort of fell into it off, off the back of that um you know that company unfortunately failed, but the, the the division that I was working on, I then took on and created my own business for, for three years before eventually moving to Cisco. Very nice. Uh, and looking back on on your career, um, who or what has been the biggest influence so far? So I think I'm very fortunate in that you know one of the best influences I've had is my father. That might be a little bit cliche and whatever but um you know he he was an incredibly successful business person back in Australia in you know in the 80s and 90s and um so I as a young kid I got to witness all of that and experience all of that um and you know I, I find that very inspiring what he achieved and I you know I see the camaraderie he still has with people that work for him you know 40 years ago you know still staying in touch still seeking him out you know because he, he obviously demonstrated phenomenal leadership um, and innovation at that time with the office equipment industry. So, you know, he's certainly been one of the biggest influences and, and inspirations um, for me getting into the industry. And then, you know, having had a long period of time working at Cisco and Cisco Meraki and the likes, like I've had some phenomenal um, mentors and leaders, you know, throughout that time that have really, you know, empowered me to do great things and have really spurred me on and invested in me and my career. And that's that's been uh, incredibly you know, I'm incredibly grateful for that experience. Perfect. And what achievement are you most proud of? Um, there's probably a few. Look, I think there's, you know, if I go to my Australia period, that was um, really pioneering um, a partnership that we forged with an industry that we, like, you at least expect to be partnering with. You know, we, we worked with one of the leading construction companies 
in Australia that was doing a lot of you know real estate developments and urban redevelopments and building of public infrastructure, things like hospitals. And we we actually forged a partnership with with them and convinced them to to basically build a new capability in their business, which was around technology and construction. Um, you know, they that strategy played out over many years, and they they built a very healthy business off the back of that. So that's that's one that I'm you know very proud of. That was a multi-year um, you know multi-year process. And then secondly, I would say that the time at Meraki, I'm particularly proud of. You know, joined that at a time when it was still relatively new in terms of um, you know Meraki as a concept going into the service provider segment. So I came in when we were still you know, still battling, you know, still battling with service providers, getting them into the mindset of consuming a platform versus building and owning and operating systems themselves. And then, you know, building a team. So, you know, I had the great fortune of getting investment to go and build my own team from scratch, uh, scaling that team, building this and devising the strategy and ultimately taking, you know, that business with the team around us from, you know, less than a hundred million to over half a billion in the space of five to six years. So that was a, you know, we became the growth engine effectively for for Meraki during that period. So I'm you know, incredibly proud of um, the team that I built, and then also the the business that we built throughout that period of time. Huge achievement, absolutely, absolutely massive. And there's some there are some figures to back that up, and I know that. Uh, as a salesperson, figures are often the thing that we sort of pin ourselves to, but it's it's nice to have the figures to back up the enjoyment that you, you achieved over that period. Do you know what what, what was even probably better than the results? The results is kind of the byproduct, I would say. Like that's the, the results are phenomenal, but it was more the industry transition that we were able to lead, which I think was was phenomenal. I mean, we um you know, I remember some of the early conversations I was having with some of the service providers that were still very much stuck in, we must build, own and operate our own systems and platforms to getting their heads around the concept of consuming a platform and building their, their value wrap around that. And, you know, some of those people that were really challenging me and debating hard, you know, in the, in the early days were, you know, when I left some of our biggest partners that we had, you know, they were doing tens of millions of, of business with us. Um, so it was great to me. That was sort of more pleasing and more satisfying was to kind of see that transition and to lead that transition for the industry. Um, you know, the revenue and the, the growth and the bookings was really like a, a happy byproduct from, from that, I think. Sounds like a huge success. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, phenomenal. And as you say, to, to grow that from scratch as well, um, there is, yeah, excellent to, to, to see. And I'm sure we'll touch on um, slightly later on, perhaps a, a similar um, situation at the moment um, there with, with Plume. But um, great to hear about the past. Um, passing over to Tom um, to, to look at kind of the, the present day and, and a little bit into the future as well. Thanks, Dan and, and Shane. Great to have you on the podcast. Most importantly, keen to get stuck into it. Where do you prefer living? The Australia or the UK? At this time of year? <laughs> if you ask me now, definitely Australia. If you ask me, you know, in a few months' time, maybe six months' time, probably the UK. But, you know, like there's there's benefits of both. Like I think we're fortunate that we're kind of like we've got the best of both worlds there. Um, you know, the whole family are dual citizens now, so we can kind of make the transition <laughs> whenever we please, which is 
which is great. Wow. But um, you know, there's a lot of obviously a lot of things that I miss about the lifestyle in Australia, but mm. um, there's a lot of stuff that you don't get in Australia, like history and culture and stuff that you have over here in in Europe. And I I love skiing, like I love the mountains. So um, you know, having the Alps kind of on your doorstep is is a luxury, that's for sure. You're a man after my own heart. I will say I'd happily have a mountain holiday over a beach holiday. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, okay, so um, you've joined Plume and we're you know now in a position where we're sort of coming out of restrictions in the UK. How have you found that? Um, it's not, I mean, look, there's a little bit more travel and stuff that's starting to pop up. We are seeing trade shows and stuff starting to pop up um, and that we're attending a little bit more. I mean, I was reflecting on it just the other day, you know, when I joined Plume a year ago, we were still in, in the eye of the storm, you know, we were still well and truly in lockdown, you know, um, shows were cancelling, you know, the last minute there was like, you know, travel was still restricted to this, whereas like now it's completely unrestricted, but I, I wouldn't say we're back to the old days where we were getting on a plane every day right. or every week. You know, I think that people are a lot more intentional about travel these days, which I think is a great thing. Um, you know, the amount of travel I used to do in my old roles pre-pandemic, where it was kind of like, no, you've just got to be there to show your face. Um, you know, th those kind of excuses go away a little bit now. People are a lot more intentional about when they travel. It's for a specific, you know, purpose and an outcome. And I, I'm all in favour of that change sticking around. I couldn't agree more, to be totally honest. In terms of sales and your approach to approach to selling, how do you think that shift has impacted the approach you and your sales teams take to winning business? So, look, I think um, it's it's a lot more culturally acceptable to be doing meetings. Over, over these sort of means, you know, over video conferencing and and whatnot. And like I said, like the in-person interactions are still valuable and they're still important and they should still happen, but for a purpose and with intention. So I think like um, I, I would say I'm obviously doing a lot more of these sort of virtual meetings. We're doing a lot more virtual get-togethers, but I'm still, in terms of just the way my brain operates and the way my create creativity operates, I like to be in a room surrounded by people with bringing their ideas and their energy and whiteboarding and all that kind of stuff. Like I think when you're doing planning and um, strategy and stuff like that, it's always good to get the collective thought in a room versus trying to do it in a in this sort of virtual environment where you can be easily distracted by your dog or your kids or whatever. Um, but from the day-to-day -day selling though, like I think it's completely acceptable to be building relationships now over over video conferencing and the technology's come such a such a long way that it's it's immersive and it's it's kind of you get the same feeling. The only thing you don't you miss is the dimensions. Like that's probably been the funniest thing, isn't it? When you you go to a trade show or you meet your colleagues for the first time after doing Zooms with them and you go, wow, <laughs> you know, Zoom's a great normaliser. When you get in person, someone's like seven foot tall or they're, <laughs> it's amazing. It's totally true. Absolutely. Um, and I hadn't thought of it, but you're right. There are some people <laughs> have a, you get a completely different perspective of over video. Do, do you think anything's changed in terms of the types and 
styles of conversations that people have to have to sell over video? Uh, not, not necessarily. Um, not necessarily. I think the hardest, the hardest thing with selling over video is just like removing the distractions and being focused. Because when you're mm. in a meeting room, there's nowhere to hide. You know what I mean? Like you, you're there, you're present, and you have to be present. Otherwise, it's really obvious. Whereas it's easy to get distracted when you're in a Zoom call, and and maybe it's it's harder to to tell when someone's distracted in a Zoom call and they're surfing other browsers on their you know, on their screen and not really engaged. Um, so I think from that perspective, like you do need to think about your, like if you're presenting, for example, you want to try and make it a bit more interactive. So mm. you're encouraging people to stay focused and you're encouraging people to, to stay engaged rather than getting distracted. Like that sort of stuff is mm. definitely important. I think when you're, you're selling in this more digital way, um, but also educating, like you have to kind of really take, customers on a journey and educate them about your solutions and your value and you know understand their pain etc like you have to do all of that um you know progressively over time and educate them so when you when you're getting to a, a point of like transacting you've built the relationship they've got all the knowledge that they need about what you're doing they understand the value and and they can make a you know an informed decision you're totally right on distractions and you mentioned earlier about living in the UK at this time of year I've had throughout the entirety of this podcast so far rain hammering at my window yeah yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but it's probably, a really valid valid point like my my little my little mate over here comes and joins me but then you know he'll scratch on the door because he wants to get out and you kind of <laughs> or it gets to three o'clock and the kids start coming home from school and they don't get the concept of the door shut dad's on a call <laughs> no big no, question now shane is it a cat or a dog you a cat a or a dog man it's a dog good dog. i'm happy i'm happy yeah. <laughs> uh, that would have been a write-off podcast would have ended a bit sooner than the normal and <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you most excited for about the future of the connected industry um look i think we're we're at, we're at a stage now where, you know, if I, if, I, if I rewind the clock, you know, even just five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, connectivity was still like, there were still market improvements to be made from connectivity. So like, if you think of, um, you know, bandwidth speeds and the economics of, of bandwidth, you know, prices dropping dramatically, speeds increasing dramatically over that period of time, we're kind of at a point now where we've got so much capacity available to us at an affordable price, like which creates a challenge for service providers. Like that's something they're all grappling with, you know, massively. But for us as consumers, like I think it's phenomenal that we've got so much more available access to good quality internet and capacity. But it's then, well, what do we do with it? You know, how do we make it tangible? Um, because like, you, you know, we're at a, like, at a gig to your home today like if it goes to two gig tomorrow is that really going to make a huge difference for you you know people will make maybe they'll just buy it because they can because it's affordable and it's you know better than a gig for some reason but they'll only consume a fraction of it so it's what mm -hmm. excites me for the future of connectivity is really like what are the applications that'll start to spawn um off the back of having this robust you know connectivity infrastructure available to and accessible to the majority of, of consumers and businesses. I think that's that's the piece that's going to be super exciting. I mean, you've got 
great cloud infrastructure, you know, that's built out there now across the board. A lot of the big hyperscalers have got great cloud infrastructure. There's phenomenal technology around, you know, AI and machine learning and everything kind of coming up. Um, I'm still yet to be converted on the idea of what's coming with like AR and VR and some of that stuff, but you know, I'm, I'll be happy to see what that transpires to, but right now I can't, I can't see it personally. Um, but I am, I am looking forward to seeing like the applications and the, the new business models that start to spawn off the back of having such a robust infrastructure available at, at mass mm. around the world. Um, so yeah really valid point i have to look at my my just my cell phone mobile phone usage and and oh new contract i should upgrade to a, a very high powered contract because i should but actually the usage i have of it is minuscule because i use my phone to text my friends and that's almost essentially it and this is how we've been educated right like we've yeah we as consumers have been educated about buying you know different tiers of bandwidth or you know, gigabits and gigabytes and megabits and megabytes, but really the average consumer who's, you know, we're in tech and we kind of get that, but the average consumer really doesn't care. Like they don't get it. Like they just want the experience. They want to be able to access the applications that they want to access. They want to be able to access them without um, latency and issues. You know, they just want to be able to, to, to consume. Um, and actually we're seeing a few forward-looking service providers actually completely changing their, you know, their go-to-market approach um, with that because they've, they've done the analysis and they're seeing that it's law of diminishing returns right now in terms of adding more speed at a lower price. Mm. And it's all about personalization and it's all about the in-home experience um, more so. So like, just, just to kind of round that one off, there's, you know, this one, I won't name their names, but it's, you know, forward-looking service provider has basically gone from managing five or six tariffs, you know, 50 meg, 100 meg, 200 meg, 300 meg, blah, blah, blah. And they've rationalized it down to two. They've just said, here's our basic package. It's $29.90 a month and you get this minimum level of service. It's priced in a traditional way. And then you've got our max bundle. And the max bundle is the last bundle you'll ever need to subscribe to because what it means is, they're not advertising speeds or feeds or anything. They're just saying, we're going to give you the greatest in-home experience you have. We're going to ship you, you know, the best, um, you know, Wi-Fi mesh environment. We're going to cover your, your house with connectivity so that you can consume the network that you're subscribing to. And you'll always get the maximum available bandwidth when it's provisioned in your area. So you never have to call us again and say, I want to upgrade to the next service. You know, one day you'll do a speed test and it's 200 meg. The next day it might be 500 meg because they've provisioned 500 meg to your area. So you never have to worry about it or think about it. And I think that's a, a phenomenal, bold, disruptive move, which I think the rest of the industry should take a good hard look at because, mm. um, you know, it is inconvenient, you know, for us as, as customers thinking that we, we might be on a legacy product that we need to upgrade, it's inconvenient. Um, you know, so the customer satisfaction, customer experience, like it creates natural points in which you might churn from one provider to another. Um, but equally operationally for the service providers, it's a nightmare. They have to manage, you know, sunsetting and grandfathering tariffs and then trying to move their customers further on to new modern, modern platforms. So like, I think it's a great, a great sign that somebody's taken that decision to focus on the experience for the customer rather than the speeds and feeds. 
like you say, very disruptive, but definitely worth a long, hard, a long, hard look at. Speaking about in-home experiences, I must say thank you to Plume, I believe, because my Virgin Media uh, in-home connectivity to have this very podcast call has been supported by a little home pass, a little hexagonal home pass. So um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Now, Virgin is one of our flagship customers. They're doing some great stuff. And equally, they're, they're being quite disruptive. They only a couple of months ago um, launched this in-home Wi-Fi coverage guarantee as part mm. of this. So, um, you know, they'll, they'll basically guarantee that in, in any corner of your home, you're getting a minimum of, like, I think it's 20 meg is the, the throughput on your devices. So, like, again, that's a pretty bold move. And, and disruptive it is it is it's working so yep. far no no lag so far yeah. in this call <laughs> um, i'm going to pass you over to dan for our uh, key topic that matters over to you dan perfect and certainly leads us in in very nicely and i'm i'm absolutely one of those uh sort of top end or, or trying to be top end customers that that is the marketeer's dream of of everything unlimited and and you have to consider the that the best possible option um there for sure but um as tom says um moving on to to the um topic that matters which is the the connected home i was yeah. joined um plume within the last year so um, what have you seen from from the market um, during that year, and and what would you say is the sort of current state of play? So, like, I mean, if you if you look at a lot of the markets, I mean, not not every market, like all markets, have got some subtle differences in terms of the the landscape, um, regulatory landscapes, and stuff. But you know, if you take just our home market here, right, UK, there's this huge growing number of um, fiber providers that are that are spawning all, all throughout the countryside, delivering um, you know excellent speeds and quality of service to the customers in regions that were, were previously un you know un um, prioritized, deprioritized. Um, now, now what I'm seeing when we're talking to customers is it is about the in-home experience. Like they've built these phenomenal networks, customers' expectations become extremely high, right? Like if you've you've subscribed to a 500 meg service or a one gig service and you're paying your 20 bucks a month or 30 pounds a month or whatever it is for the service, you expect to be able to consume a gig or 500 meg or whatever the service is. Um, you know, so that in-home connectivity piece is, is super important. You know, customers are wanting to add more and more devices into their homes than ever before. Um, you know, something which you guys might be interested in, in learning about, but we issue a, and publish every month something that we call the Plume IQ, which is looking at the data and trends that we're seeing in terms of devices connecting to our clouds, you know, security, cybersecurity trends, all that sort of stuff that are happening across the connected homes and devices within our, um, within our clouds. Um, and what we're seeing is like, it's not slowing down, right? Like people, people are embracing smart home technologies, people are wanting to do more, they're adding more smart devices into their homes, like connectivity inside of the home is becoming more and more important. Um, you know, and I think that's the piece that a lot of the service providers are grappling with, because uh, unfortunately, for them, perception is reality. And the perception is if I can't connect my phone to Facebook, when I'm sat inside of my lounge room, it means the internet's down. It does, you know, the internet might be perfect, you know, to the doorstep of your home, it's the Wi-Fi connectivity in the home that might be the challenge or the bottleneck. But for us as consumers, we we just see it as the internet is failing us. 
<laughs> you know, so it's kind of all blended into the one homogenous thing now, connect the internet and Wi-Fi connectivity. It's all just connectivity and the internet. Um, so look, I think that's that's the piece that people are really trying to to learn about and discover what is the pathway for their for their future product roadmaps to support the needs of customers on this whole smart home journey, um, but also deliver the experiences that people expect from the bandwidth that they're consuming from these service providers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the, uh, yeah, it's the, the be all and end all when you move to that far corner of your house away from your router and, and there's, there's no connectivity at end of the world for, for sure. So um, no, that, that, that makes sense. And you touched on it a little bit there about um, Plume. So t tell us more um, about that and about kind of your role at, at the business and perhaps what you're hoping to bring or, or what cloud and AI can, can bring to, to the connected home. Yeah, so look, I mean, one, one thing, um, like Plume is basically building one of the biggest software-defined networks in the world. If you think about it, we have 43 million locations connected to our cloud. Um, we serve, we see near, nearly 2 billion devices on a daily basis connected to the cloud. So with that, that sort of level of data and intelligence means that we can start to do things at great scale, right? Like our AI can learn a lot faster and can be a lot more dynamic um, in terms of optimizing our customers' environments, um, the more we scale. So that sort of didn't exist before the cloud, you know, and before, you know, companies like Plume existed, it was all done, you know, in the home on the small amount of processing power that might be available on your home router. Um, whereas now we're able to do it at infinite scale in the cloud and with, um, and apply that aggregate learning across all of our customers. So everybody benefits. Um, you know, and that's, you know, to give you a, um, a tangible example of that, I mean, we found, um, you know, we, we noticed a trend that Roku devices in the US were defaulting to the five gigahertz radio waves inside of the home on the Wi-Fi. And unfortunately, they were also then failing when they were on five gigs. So even though the hardware and the platform said it could operate on both bands inside of the home, it was failing when it hit five gig. Our AI picked it up. It could make the change. It could push an optimization out to all homes around the world that when they see a Roku device, put it onto the 2.5 gig, um, 2.4 gig spectrum. Um, and then everything worked. So fortunately for us in Europe, we, we slightly lag behind the Americas. So we would never have experienced that issue because our AI had learned that from customers in the US and then applied that logic and optimization on a worldwide scale. So that's the kind of stuff that Plume is is doing, right? It's got the power of massive data, you know, petabytes and petabytes of data that's coming into the cloud, learning on a daily basis about, you know, the nuances of specific devices and how they behave, and then optimizing that experience for customers. Which, if you then look at the the value chain, I mean, that's that's great. Customer, if the customer's happy, they're not calling their service provider. They're not likely to churn. Service providers are happy. Their operational costs, you know, lower because they're not, you know, they're not taking as many calls. They're not sending as many technicians to site to diagnose issues. And all in all, then the biggest metric that really matters for service providers is NPS. So we, we, we can have a really positive impact on the NPS scores based on what I've just described um, for our service providers. So that's where they see immense value. But um, you know, we really we've got this, you know, phenomenal cloud infrastructure you know, that's um, learning at scale, masses of data. 
and then applying that uh, that benefit across all of our customers on a worldwide basis. So, yeah, it's great what they're doing. Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm all for for the AI and and yeah for for the impacts and the, the benefits that, that that can have. And I know it's uh, it can be a slightly uh, sore subject for for some around around some of the, the security piece and uh, around the, the data and Big Brother watching you um, uh, as well. So how how does that sort of impact and what considerations do you have to make from either that perspective um, and also a kind of cybersecurity perspective as well? Yes, I mean, look, one of the services that we do deliver is cybersecurity. So, I mean, we are, you know, we are doing a lot to help benefit the home. So we're you know, one of the differences, I guess, between what we do around cybersecurity um, is that we're doing it at a network level. And so devices that typically won't have security on them, um, you know, like IoT devices, for example, they're, they're often the single biggest um, attack vector for, um, you know, for cyber criminals. So what we're doing is we can see those trends. We can see when attacks are being made to your thermostats or to your you know, your digital air conditioning system or whatever it might be. Um, and we can quarantine or we can block or we can we can do intelligent decisions based on that. So, you know, from a cyber perspective, we're actually, again, being, being cloud-based and being done, done at a network level, um, we can actually be incredibly beneficial to, to the consumers on that front. On the, on the privacy piece, I mean, look, it's an important topic and it's it's something that is heavily regulated across the world in terms of privacy and it, and it matters. And, um, you know, for us, what we do is we take that very seriously and we have, you know, we've been through all of the GDPR and all of the equivalents around the world and we're, you know, we make sure that what we're doing is in compliance with, with all of that. Um, and it's less about the personal information. Like we're not as interested in the personal information, i.e. it's Dan's iPhone 14 or whatever. It's, it's more about knowing that there's an iPhone 14 and an iPhone 14 behaves in this particular way. And in order to make sure the experience for that iPhone 14 when it's accessing Facebook is the best, we need to make sure that the network is performing in this way. So that's really like the power of what we're doing with AI. It's less about, whilst we do want to deliver personalized experiences, because I think that's that's something that we as consumers would prefer. We'd much rather be consuming personalized experiences than random ones that um, have no relevance to us. Um, we're less interested about, you know, you as the individual and anything personal about you. Um, and more so we're, what we're interested in is, you know, like the environment that you've, the connected environment that you've got and how we can optimize that for you. For sure, for sure, it's an interesting topic and, and certainly one that, that's sensitive. I'm all for a personalised advert on my phone and, and showing me something that I've been online shopping for and trying to to resist buying. But when my phone tells me that I'm it's five minutes to the gym and I'm actually going to pick up a takeaway, uh, that that's probably not the, the the best application for for me. But no, that that all makes sense. And and in terms of of kind of use cases for the technology. And um, which use case would you find most useful in, in your home that, that you don't currently have either something that's out there available at the moment or perhaps looking slightly futuristic with it as well? Look, I think that if you look at um, a bit of the buzz that, I, that I've noticed, um, you know, in the industry and at some of the trade shows and that, and from talking to customers, uh, the thing that people are trying to grapple with is this whole smart home environment. I mean, you've got complexity of 
many different vendors or building things that don't necessarily interoperate with each other easily. Um, you know, so there's a fair bit of buzz around this new matter organization that's kind of been formed between the big guys, you know, Amazon, Google, and I think it's Microsoft, um, Apple, sorry, and they've all come together and then now like IoT bodies are basically building towards this matter framework, which, you know, is the great white hope that it'll normalize things in terms of like internet connectivity and smart home environments. So I personally, like, I'm a bit of a boffin and I like, I like to tinker with some stuff, but I also would like things to work simply. I love simplicity. And I think that's the piece that's missing at the moment. And I'm hopeful that things like matter and I, I love that there's collaborations happening between, you know, big guys that typically compete, you know, at a device level or an application level, but they realize that for the best customer experience, um, they need to collaborate a little bit. So I think that's that's only going to be beneficial in the long run. And I think that's the piece that would certainly help me. And I'm sure a lot of other consumers that like playing around with smart home stuff, that if you can connect it simply and have it interoperate simply and, you know, make them do things together, like that's when the magic can really start to happen. So um, I think that's going to be an exciting time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah, really fantastic um, insight from, from yourself there across um, all, all things sort of connected home. So um, to pass over to Tom for another core um, topic for us, which is diversity. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so, Shane, how have you seen the state of diversity change in the connectivity industry over the past three years? Um, I wouldn't say I've noticed a massive difference in the last three years but if I expand the spectrum a little bit from like when I joined IT to today I think there's been some phenomenal improvements and I you know we've still we've got a long way to go we've got a massive hill to climb here I think the tech industry is is probably ahead of the game than some some other industries but there's still a long way to go like we you know, I'm, a, I'm quite passionate about this topic because I'm a father with three daughters and, you know, the last thing I want to see is them walking into environments that I witnessed, you know, 20 years ago when I first got into IT. Mm. You know, so I, I'm, I'm pleased to see that it's got the attention of companies and it's got the attention that it deserves and people are, are taking it seriously. Like at first it was a little bit of a... You know, I would say if you watch, if you look at the waves, you know, unfortunately, there was a little bit of um, the first phase was sort of a, a bit of a token gesture, but now yeah. it's people are normal. It's becoming more, the more we talk about it and the more we do stuff about it, the more it just becomes the norm. And I think yeah. we're, we're progressing, you know, on a daily basis. Could we do better? Yes. And we've still got a long way to go. Um, you know, but I, I do think people are taking it seriously now. You know, I do. I truly believe that you know the intentions from some you know companies are real, uh, and they are taking it seriously. I think, but there's a huge amount of you know unconscious bias, you know subconscious subconscious learnings from just the environments that generations grew up in, and that's going to take generations to filter out. You know what I mean? Unfortunately. Mm. Um, but the more like the more it becomes a topic of conversation and the more it's something where people put real initiatives around it and people don't just speak words but take action, it, it can change in a positive way. But um, 
but yeah, I, I would say uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, I've seen a dramatic change, but in the last three years, I think we're still progressively moving in the right direction. Makes makes total sense. And you, you mentioned an interesting point there uh, yeah, about the benefits of it. I think a really plausible action to, to sort of help impact changes, really celebrating those benefits and, and being really clear and open with them. Are there any other sort of, you know, practical things that you've either seen businesses do or heard of businesses doing that have had a positive impact on diversity and inclusion across businesses? Um, I think the biggest thing is just the shift of mindset, right? Like I think I, the thing that bugs me the most is when I hear the excuse, you know, particularly when it comes to like women in the workforce, you know, because I'm, like I said, I've got three daughters and I'm passionate about this one. And they, the excuse you hear too often is, um, I'll just, I'll always just pick the best talent available. You know, like that's the sort of bog standard answer, which is right. You should always pick the best talent available, but um you know, unfortunately, then they'll say, but the talent pool isn't there available to us. And I was like, you're right, it isn't there. It's not the same, you know, we don't have the same amount of candidates that come through that are female, but it doesn't mean that the ones that do come through aren't the best and and couldn't be the best with the right, you know, like anybody with the right platform to support them, um, the right encouragement and leadership, you know, to support them the empowerment to to have them be able to contribute like um you know that sort of stuff winds me up massively and i think like this is really a, a leadership thing where people need to kind of break down that barrier and focus on normalizing things and putting that effort in um mm. but yeah i think that's that's probably but in terms of initiatives um i actually think we need to get a bit more grassroots on this topic like to me, that's where the problem really lies. Like I think we've got to get, um, you know, more diverse, you know, sectors of the population interested in the industries that we operate in. You know, we've got to like. Yeah. I'm, I'm always going to be in tech, I think, and tech's a great industry. So like, I'm really passionate. Like, we should be educating kids in school and getting them excited about mm. the opportunity to work in tech and have a career in tech from a very early age and solve it at a grassroots level rather than trying to solve the problem where, you know, with mid-year and, and like mid-career type profiles of people. I mean, they're, they're kind of already set in their ways a little bit, unfortunately. You know, if you can get in a bit earlier in the process, early in career and, and also even at school levels, like then we can maybe have a really positive impact. Yeah, it's a recurring theme in this segment of the podcast is that... Uh, getting more interest at an earlier stage in those sort of STEM subjects. Yeah. And yeah, that, that would help. Absolutely. You also mentioned another really interesting point about, and I suppose about assessing someone's suitability for any given position in their own right, rather than in comparison to anyone else, because if someone individually can do a role and, you know, Damla says to it, it's a conversation we have quite a lot, but if someone can do a role in their own, uh, on the basis of their experience and their personality and, and culture fit, then that shouldn't need a comparison against anyone else. No. Necessarily. Which would hopefully eliminate some of the, well, I need to sort of see everybody in a certain world to, to identify who's best. Yeah, I mean, look, the, everybody's got, um, you know, unconscious bias and stuff like that. And I think this is about self-education 
you yeah. know, people in people who are in positions of making career choices for people, like in terms of hiring decisions, they they should invest in self-awareness and self-education when it comes to unconscious bias and and really put a focus on how do they, you know, how do they eliminate or minimize that that from the process, you know, and have have diversity in thought in terms of even the, you know, the hiring process. So, you know, make sure you've got not only yourself and five other middle-class white men, you know, interviewing candidates that are coming through, like get a diverse interviewing panel that mm. can, bring, you know, bring diversity of, of thought in into that process. Like I think there's, there's ways of doing it, but it, it does take, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Like we're, we're all, you know, we've all been through the generation we've been through, but like we need to be challenging ourselves to, to do better and to learn, you know, where our blind spots may be. Brilliant. Um, Shane, thanks for your input on that topic. And, you know, like I say, clearly one that you're passionate about and, and yeah, understand why uh, I feel the same. Got a son myself, but equally, this is some from a uh, my my wife's British Chinese, so similar similar sort of theme and something very passionate about here too. Um, I'm going to pass you over to Dan. Um, we've got in some fairly meaty topics so far. Keen to delve a bit deeper into Shane and who you are. Okay, super. Thanks, Tom. Um, so yeah, as I say, keen to to learn a little bit more about you. What would your perfect weekend look like, Shane? Um, well, this time of year, it would be seeing the Wallabies crush New Zealand, which I haven't seen happen for a long time. <laughs> no chance. Or hopefully the Wallabies, you know, I am a British citizen now, but I still will always default to the Wallabies when it comes to rugby. So seeing the Wallabies crush England would be also great. <laughs> um, Not um, happening. Yeah. <laughs> and then followed, you know, followed by plenty of time hanging out with my family. That'd be my perfect weekend. Super, super. You've you've broken Tom there, um, for, for sure. I'm not so much of a rugby guy myself, but uh, yeah, Tom certainly very passionate about rugby um, there for for sure. So um, a couple of um, a couple of other sort of quick fire questions. Um, some of them are um, slightly preloaded from from what you've said earlier on. So uh, skiing or scuba? Oh, geez, that's a tough one. I I'll prefer. <laughs> I mean, I love those both equally, but I'd, I'd probably default to skiing. Very nice. Very nice. And then one I was told to ask you, is it Palmy or Palmer? <laughs> it's Palmy. Palmy. You're a Palmy man. Okay. Okay. Super. So, um, no, appreciate that. And, and great to, to get the insight. Um, that was... Uh, one of our colleagues has got lots of Australian friends uh, and he said, oh, you, ha you have to ask this. If you're, you're talking to an Aussie, you have to ask this. It, it divides <laughs> opinion massively. Um, so see which side of the fence you're on. What, what is a palmy or a palmer? It's I'm like, missing something here. It's like a, a you know, like a parmigiana, chicken parmigiana or a veal parmigiana. It's like a schnitzel with sauce on it. <laughs> oh, which we delicious. By the way, we call him a schnitty. <laughs> <laughs> love a nickname <laughs> is it, it and it's the the pronunciation is different from depending on region is it it's like a, a grass and grass like north and south uk for example or, uh, or not not so much no oh, okay no problem well I'll, I'll let him know that it's palmy um for, for sure so 
Um, one final question from, from our side, um, which is always the same. Um, which one piece of advice would you give to somebody entering the industry? Oh, that's a good one. Look, I think going into any industry, um, you know, be curious. Like, you know, go in with eyes wide open and be curious. Like, always be open to learning. I think that's um, that's something like anybody should do even later on in career. Like, try not to get too set in your ways and 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 be be open to learning. Um, take seek advice. You know, find your core, like find good mentors. To support you i mean the thing that um, i was fortunate enough to have is some great mentors throughout my early stage of career and ongoing through my career um, and i think like sometimes it's a bit um you know for young people coming into the industry they can find that a little bit um uh challenging you know to or um, intimidating to go and ask someone who's very senior for, for advice or for help whereas you know more often than not they're willing and open and, and actually get, get a lot of value out of giving that help and guidance to young people. So I'd say like, don't be, don't be afraid to go and ask for help and to surround yourselves with some great mentors um, over time. Like the worst thing they can do is say, sorry, I'm too busy. Do you know what I mean? Like it's never going to be a hindrance to your career to go and do that. But the, the value you'll get in return from doing it is, is immense for both parties. Um, so that, that's probably one of the biggest pieces of advice. Be yourself, like always be authentic and yourself. Um, like that's that's huge. I mean, sales can be very ego driven and it's very easy to get sucked into the ego, but actually like the more you can be your authentic self every day, like the, the better you'll be because people will trust you more. People will believe in you more, you know, when you when you bring your true self. Um, that, that'd probably be some of my key bits of advice. Super. Thanks for that. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show, Shane. Um, and yeah, appreciate your insight across um, all of what we've discussed. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks, Shane. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at www.nuco-group.com. That's N-E-U-C-O hyphen group dot com.